At the signal, time will be out of joint. Hello, and welcome to Weird Signal, the podcast of all things weird, eerie, and hauntological. My name is Lucy, and I'm here as ever, after a long break, with Sean. Hello, how are you doing, Lucy? I'm doing good. I'm a little, um, a little, well, <laughs> a little jazzed for this episode in a kind of, like, uh, paranoid, burnt-out way. But Perfect. that is kind of appropriate, given the content. Uh, how are you doing, Sean? Uh, I am, I am... God, what am I? That's a good question. It's half past six on a Thursday, and I came at this right after finishing a very long day at work. I've got a can of lukewarm Budweiser with me, and I'm feeling a little bit too warm because I'm sat next to the radiator. So I'm in the I'm in the right state of like physical and mental like mild discomfort to really energize me for this podcast. In this terrifying year of our Lord, 2023, is that. Hey, the fuck so yeah this is our first episode for over a year incredibly we did not get one done last year uh we except the the closest we got to it was our appearance on horror vanguard which uh if if you've not heard that listener go and check it out um horror vanguard a fantastic podcast and it was really great fun uh going on there and talking about chemical wedding which is a terrible film and i'm glad that we, i'm glad we hurt them by making them watch chemical wedding <laughs> but i hope we've actually i don't know i hope we've like managed to redirect some money to julian doyle in the process i don't i just for some reason some part of me feels like he deserves some some cred even though we did nothing but like neg on the film or like <laughs> knock the film <laughs> well, well, well if he didn't to... want us to he yeah. should have made a better film shouldn't he so. well, uh, a film from incredibly think... from 2008 and does not f- and feels oh well, let's not talk about chemical wedding if you yeah, want to we hear about chemical that. wedding we go and listen to the podcast we did about chemical wedding with horror vanguard and go listen to horror vanguard um just generally um but yeah so uh the film we've got tonight is um also a very low budget film, but also, but unlike that, an extreme, like, one that we are quarant over the fact that it is an objectively good film. And um, that film being, I'm not, I don't think we should do like the mystery thing anymore because we don't have like an essay section for this per se. Um, but that film is Shinya Tsukamoto's Tetsuo the Iron Man 1989. And um, yeah, so this is kind of like concluding what, was a kind of was initially an unplanned like Japanese late twentieth century cinematic trifecta consisting of Pulse, kind of technically Marabito, um, which on that kind of like J horror plus Marabito episode, and this Tetsuo the Iron Man, um, and yeah, both the last two involving and starring Shinya Tsukamoto, the director, um, but yeah, and like, do you want to just like. I don't know, like, how do, you, how do you feel this, like, fits into that sequence of things? Well, the the first thing I'll say, actually, listeners, I'm getting over a cold, so apologies if I occasionally start coughing in a way that sounds like it's me, like I'm doing it as an act, but actually I'm not. In fact, <coughs> excuse me, um, how does it fit in? So I think where we where Tetsuo fits into a kind of thematic and aesthetic continuity with those two other films, obviously there's the intersection between supernaturality of some kind with 
emerging through a technological uh, intermediary. But unlike, certainly unlike Pulse, which is a very, feels very realist um pulse has a has a something of a realist sensibility to it, it um and well marabito marabito is more fantastical but this is much more plugged into the absurd the um to use the tortured overused term surrealist sensibilities uh more more than either of them it's it's a much it's a much funnier film um quite quite deliberately like it is quite it it it's, it owns its absurdity. It owns its um, the sense of um, going over the top um, that you get in a film where a man turns into a biomechanoid with a giant drill penis. Um, it's um, and I think I think it it continues the it continues and it, and and it it embodies those themes of a deep concern for. The nature uh, uh, for the nature of technological um, mediation as a fact of everyday life, and the sense of the sense of, I, su- I suppose with Pulse is about social dislocation of, and social displacement due to the encroachment of the di- of the digital. I think with um, with Tetsuo it is more about being dispossessed of our own bodies of losing our sense of losing any control we have over our body um we're in particular the and in particular like unlike either of them is much it's very it's tremendously visceral it's an incredibly physical film it's very much about the you know the condensation on on the side of a white hot steam hammer you know it's much more it's much more about that than uh than pulse or marabito uh than pulse or marabito it's and and that sense of the vulnerability of the body when it comes into contact with the mechanical um with the with the machinic the way that you can just be turned into pulp and mist uh by close by close calls of these things yeah i think that's also just kind of like in indicative of the fact that like yeah it's well i don't know i found that like even though it's like it takes place in like you know in many in in a certain sense a, a different world from the other two films where actually no all three of them kind of exist in like different and overlapping worlds but they all kind which is something i kind of want to like go into actually like once we've once we've like hammered out like the synopsis but i feel that um they are very much kind of like reacting to the same questions that faced um, kind of artists and people in Japan in the late 20th century and early early 21st century, uh, but like from radically different places in radically different ways. But I think the kind of I think the presence of Pulse and Maribido like have a well, as as I think we'll see, we'll have like a lot that will sort of ground these ideas. But um, should we like before before pressing on further with like analysis, should we go into a synopsis of like what the fuck happens in Tetsuya the Iron Man? New World. God, what does happen in Tetsuo the Iron Man? This is the thing, like, it's quite a short film. It's about 65 minutes long, I think. And it's very spare when it comes to plot. It's very much a vibes-based kind of film. Um, it kind of uh, switches out 
what would be in many cases, you know, what would be opportunities for exposition to just open-ended questions. Like, you know, am I being, I think it's phrased as a question like, am I being punished? Am I being, you know, <laughs> what is, you know, what is happening to me? And it's like, it does leave, it does kind of like introduce like the cognitive territory for people to like, to uh, really appraise what is happening because it's, uh, it certainly doesn't seem to have like a kind of like a message that it wishes to convey so much as a process it wishes to depict. Yes. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Because yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. the, in some ways, structurally, I, I, mean, I think in some ways structurally, this feels like it, this could be almost an M.R. James ghost story is the thing. But, about... but what, I mean, what happens? Like, we gotta, we gotta get it. Uh, what actually happens? Okay, so, so yeah, there we have... From the top, like, what, who, who are our, who are our dramatis personae, uh, and what do they do to one another? Right, so we have a guy called the Metal Fetishist, who is exactly what you'd expect someone called the Metal Fetishist to be. We have uh, a Japanese salaryman called the Salaryman. We have his girlfriend, his girlfriend. Uh, we have woman on subway, and uh, that's more or less it, really. Really, um, when when it comes to when it comes to the uh, the people actually appear in this film, the um, the met we we the film opens with the metal fetishist who is played by Shinya Sukamoto cutting uh, a wound into his leg and shoving a bolt into it for kicks. Um, and yeah, it really doesn't fuck around. <laughs> oh no, it's, it, it is a difficult film to watch in places. I think it, I think that's probably the worst bit actually in terms of just pure like. Yeah, buttock tightening. Ah. He then uncovers it and finds it covered in maggots. That's, exactly. That's yeah. The other thing that happens. He runs. You know, he runs screaming out of his hiding way. He gets run over, and he gets run over by the salary man and his girlfriend. It's a hit and run. They drag the body into the woods and leave him for dead. And like the experience of this presumably nervous primal encounter of death turns on so much. They bang on the bonnet of the car before uh, before driving on, and then basically like. What happens is just later on, at some point, the metal fetishist, not the metal fetishist, excuse me, the salaryman is shaving and he finds a piece of metal has stuck out of his cheek very, very slightly. Uh, and the, or, or the piece of metal kind of embeds itself in his cheek. It's not quite clear exactly what happens. And really, kind of like from that point onwards, he is pursued by these, initially, he's pursued by this woman on the underground who suddenly just mutates into this cyborganic biomechanical monster chasing after him with a robot claw and then like after he escapes her he just finds himself in his apartment turning into a again a biomechanoid monster uh with an enormous phallic drill piece for a dick um his he attacks his girlfriend his girlfriend it's not exactly clear like you could interpret this in different ways but she seems to kind of like try to copulate with him uh while he has yeah, the i, I and, definitely want to like dissect that scene because yeah there's there is a lot to be you know kind of brought out of that yeah she um, she like dies because well what do you expect and uh the metal feather she's kind of like essentially well he explodes out of her body actually doesn't he he sort of like assembles himself out of her again uh and the two the two of them fight and then they merge together to form an enormous biomechanoid phallus and they declare they declare their undying love for each other and declare war on the world and that's the end of the film
it's incredible. Okay. It's absolutely incredible. Um, as al- as it, as always, you know, we do expect the listener to have watched the film before before listening to it. But uh, like, I think I say this about every film we do. So like, please pause the podcast and go and watch Tetsuo. It's really good. Yeah, it's really good. I mean, especially before this next part, because this will ruin it for you. Because I, I have like, we, you know, this is this is already a very. I mean, like, yes, we're rusty as fuck. In case you hadn't noticed, but this is already quite a departure from like how we handle films in terms of like how they seem to want us to handle them but like one thing that i've done seldom on this show is like speculate on like kind of what actually happens because i have some takes on like you know what it's not clear what's happening and you know there's you know they they don't go in for obvious exposition but you know i don't feel like it's necessarily a fight between the two. And also, like, um... Also, I think, like, one of the things I would point out, it's, like, it's unclear at what point, um... The metal fetishist re-enters the film, because he's sort of seen in this kind of, like, netherworld of, like, the machine world that's outside of it, and in some ways is actually described as it, almost, like, existing in the future. Like, this is... He's a sort of, like, spirit sent back from a future to come through the medium of dream. And I think, I feel like, you know, what I saw was like in the case of both the women on the subway and uh, in the scene with the girlfriend is like, is both of these characters being kind of possessed by, um, by the metal fetishist. And then, I don't know, it's like, to me, it didn't seem like a battle so much as, um, cause I think it's even described as sort of like, you know, the some, some like, fucking lazy lazier synopsis writers than even us have described it as like a kind of battle of the sexes and that's that's a whole other thing as well um but um because the kind of like gender identity of metal fetishist is something quite ambiguous and fluid in fact but i have about a page written about that yes (laughs) yeah that's gonna be a whole segment and we still do segments that's that's you know that's the weird signal way but um yeah, I don't know. I kind of, I guess I want to leave, like, questions of um, what the fuck actually happened there. Um, because I feel like they're kind of going to resurface out of our analysis. Yes, they but, will. But that, that's yeah. broad strokes. That's what, that is what happens in this film. Like I said, it is, it's not big on plot. It doesn't want to be big on plot. It is, and um, the reason, and I, I want to clarify why I said in some ways this feels like structurally you could almost be describing an M.R. James story because there's the extent to which it, on a, on a certain formal level, it does feel kind of like a story of spectral revenge in that the metal fetishist is this wronged innocent sort of well here though no, he is like they just run him over and leave him for dead he is a, he is a wronged innocent who then uh comes back and destroys or transforms the um the salary man into the image of that which he inadvertently destroyed by running him over and it, so it does have that in some ways this does feel like it could be articulated as a kind of cyberpunk very physical ghost story of an ex- of a kind um of or is that, or a or a story of ghostly mechanoid fragments um would be another way of unhelpfully articulating it because that isn't really that's a normal statement of any 
particular cognitive meaning, is it? But it's um yeah, it's it's a very it's a very tricky film to describe. It's but like it, it, again, it's it's much more it has it's much more absurd. It's, it's much more classically surreal than uh, Marabito or um or, or, or Pulse. Uh, neither of which feel like they fall into comfortably into those traditions. Um, it's it's yeah, it's yeah ah fuck I yeah feel like, <laughs> yeah. What I would sort of append to that is the fact that there is sort of like I want to talk like in a little bit about like how I see the role of magic in this film specifically but um like just thematic in the broader kind of thematic spectrum of things but uh in in this kind of in, in terms of the question of the plot how how I see that kind of working into those things it it feels like there is a kind of like there is that, you know, definitely that curse, you know, that curse structure. And yeah, I think I mentioned earlier, there's even a bit where he says, I'm being punished, that's it. Like, that this is some sort of, um, some sort of, di- or like, divine or ironic kind of, like, or just, you know, entropic sort of universal law of, I guess it was comic. comic, you know. Yeah, comic. yeah, that it's sort of, like, his, like, kind of action in committing the hit and run um, is is kind of, you know, is damning him to suffer a similar fate just in a more protracted way so as to kind of teach him, you know, show him with greater clarity the implications of his deed. Um, but I feel like kind of uh, there's 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 a definite need to kind of unpick how we see the evolution of the metal fetishist in this. Because, like, the way... The way he kind of like the the function he serves in the film is um, almost as a kind of elemental force. Uh, what element that is, I I think um, requires a little unpacking because that's like that's that's one of like the the big kind of segments I've got prepared for later. But um, yeah, it's like he is sort of he becomes the metal. He becomes kind of like the force of these things, and he his job is to his function is to uh, introduce the coming age of metal, which, you know, is illustrated through that vision of the future that he gives to Salaryman uh, during the kind of later stages of their encounter. But um, but I feel like what's significant in this is the fact that his, his engagement with this kind of, like, nascent kind of, like, just like gonna go in very very loose terms about this like energy or or kind of like manifestation of a kind of spirit of machinery and in- industrial and yeah a spirit of machinery and and industrial energy is one he kind of like not only willingly goes into but is is actively trying to in- involve himself you know ingratiate himself into and initially fails because what we see is you know, and and I'm just you know just to just to dial back a bit. You know, this is this is getting into the idea that I think we've talked about a lot. It, that is very fundamental to the idea of cyberpunk, which is you know, um, entering into a kind of like transhuman, you know, transcending the human state. It, it is just like transhumanism 101. Is kind of like integrating so much into technology that it fundamentally changes you, and that you become you know, if this technology represents a new world, then you are adapting yourself to it. He is in just such a process of adaptation. Um, but the way he chooses to go about it is is very much almost kind of like a, is more ritualistic. It's not kind of, he's not jacking into the matrix. 
he is shoving a piece of metal into a wound in his leg mm. in the hopes that he'll fucking like synthesize you know, magically synthesize with it and become part of the machine and this fails his the metal rejects him and his flesh rejects the metal and he's treated to the disgustingly biological spectacle of his leg now covered with other biological organisms feeding on the dead flesh and um and that's what prompts his kind of like crisis that leads him to run out into the street in a kind of panic, frantic situation. And that's where he gets run over. But it's um, significant that like, in, it's not his willful entry into the world. It's him getting involuntarily run over and like kind of brought, that brings him over to the other side that then makes him into this like spirit of the coming metal age. And when he manifests. And when he's run over, there's like what the camera then just kind of like lovingly slowly pans over the front bumper of the car. You know, yeah. it, it, it really very like in a way that feels quite erotic, quite sexual, quite pornographic. Yeah. While sort um, of like steamy jazz music plays even. I think that, well, I mean, like, I, I, I don't think it's, like, a dramatically, you know, original statement to say that, like, that is a direct homage to Crash. But I'm going to go oh, further yeah. and say that he, you know, you described earlier the inherent, like, humour of this film. That is his, he's kind of goofing around. That's, like, a almost a parody of Crash. It's like, lol, look, we're doing Crash. The, the guy's got hit by a car and now it's sexy sax <laughs> time. And, yeah, and we're just going to, like, lovingly go over the thing. Because, I mean, like... We've both read Crash, at least bits of it. Um, yeah, We've both it's attempted like, Crash. <laughs> yeah, and I, I know we've got like a whole sort of like slew of different kind of critical territories in which we want to kind of like locate this film. But I feel like given that this is sort of like the kind of Ballardian territory of the kind of like eroticization of car crashes is sort of like the most explicit starting point to go on in terms of like analyzing where it see where it frames itself and i think um, in contra in like contra crash um which and 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 to be perfectly honest it's a book but like okay i the reason why crash is a book i've tried to read several times and have never been able to finish is because it's a very among other things i mean it is just a very unpleasant book but it's also like very humorless you know, it's like, like um, at least my experience of it has been, maybe, like, I imagine there probably is a kind of, like, Ballardian dark comedy that emerges from it. But my experience of reading it was that sort of, this is a very cold, very, very remote and alien view of bodies and sex and technology, which is I mean, what it's meant of, to be. It is kind of like, pure I, Ballard, yeah. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's also why I actually don't especially enjoy Ballard. But the... Um, but like, kind of what? But it's interesting what you're saying, Vic. Like, in contrast, in contrast to that, I mean, we I, have Tetsuo. Sort of, sorry, can I just quickly add, like, yeah, and also the plot develop that, like, it's not just that one bit that is like the homage to Crash. It's like kind of the um, the fact that they then have sex immediately after, you know, having been turned on by the act of committing a hit and run. And then that's the character Vaughn, I think his name is, or Voice or something. Yeah, in the he's book, the guy, is, yeah. He wants to bring about a kind of like techno-apocalyptic Armageddon using the raw energies of capitalism and the kind of uh, 
anthropologically trans, you know, the anthrop, you know, the post-human transcendence of artistry associated with capitalism at meeting, you know, design meeting industrial function to bring about this new mechanical age, and that's kind of like, that's essentially what Tetsuo is doing again, writ large, but in much, m- much more gnarly terms. Exactly. Uh, but yeah. yeah. Just much, like, I felt that was necessary to Much gnarlier, much funnier, much sexier uh, one, indeed. Um, Boo wouldn't have one without the other. So um, I'm, so there's lots of directions we can go in now. I know that we both have quite a lot of material. We, we have want so to, many. We've got so much to talk about. Uh, who wants to go first? Because I think like we're at a point where we can kind of go in either, in either direction here. I think one of the things that I need to kind of like pin this down to, which will also then pin this back to the kind of where this fits in the like weird signal Japan trifecta is um, is the concept of posthumanism, which I think we need to we need to address. And this is going to be like probably my last fully kind of like relatively worked out, well worked out section in this, um, which is like what is posthumanism? And um, yeah, so I'm just gonna just gonna go into that if you could. Um, yeah. Um, oh, sorry, you were asking me. Yes, yes. Yeah, yeah. So basically, um, well, to I'll distinguish it from like what transhumanism is in a minute, but like posthumanism, posthumanism and transhumanism actually no aren't aren't like entirely separate categories. Um, they are kind of like occasionally used fairly interchangeably, but I think like the key distinction is that. Um, Transhumanism is kind of like transcending the um, is is transcending the kind of like you know the limitations or uh, tendencies or whatever or just like generally kind of like uh, the the condition of being a biological living breathing human and becoming something more than that. Uh, usually, when people talk about it, it's in technological terms because that's kind of like the most at least ethical. <laughs> Uh, but also, you know, it, it does cover a lot of kind of biological territory as well, as does posthumanism, in fact. But um, but that's kind of like the ide- ideology or the thing, you know, the intellectual movement of transhumanism is something that's grounded in that. Posthumanism is distinct as a kind of, it's more, it's specifically a critical tradition um that then kind of like leans into a lot of those ideas but it's um pretty much like the counterpoint to humanism um and to give a painfully succinct uh description of kind of like what humanism is i think i already did this a little bit with um <laughs> uh in the maratsad episode where i talked about like the dialectic of the enlightenment um uh, but basically humanism or i i actually like i'm going to be using humanism and the enlightenment fairly interchangeably humanism being kind of like the main philosophy of the enlightenment but it goes back to kind of like 17th century the advent of baconian science the move away from kind of the neoplatonic traditions of the scholastics and the idea that um the universe was inherently comprehensible through the practice of um, baconian science which was basically rigorous uh almost like kind of yeah, rigorous experimentation and deduction on an industrial scale. Um, and this idea that, like, everything about the universe was um, inherently comprehensible and that, um, and that like, this, yeah, and that, and that like, kind of, like, the, the world could be understood on those terms. And what this kind of, 
developed into ideologically um, was a belief or an, a system of ideas founded on the principle of instrumental rationality uh, in that it was, you know, because like what I've described there sounds like a kind of like, you know, leading up to a kind of like a modern post, you know, secular uh, or a post, you know, post-religious uh, society. But like what it's, what it really kind of envisioned was this idea that um, there was a certain stopping point or like, I think it's like that it, it goes into that idea of like man is the measure of all things, which is it's little, like, nice, succinct little summary, which is this idea that um, the kind of rational mind of the human being under the right circumstances was something divinely ordained by God in order to comprehend this universe and therefore, I'm putting, you know, very, very broad strokes here, but to comprehend this universe and therefore, um, well, this turned into a kind of teleological system in that uh, from this idea that like man could achieve this complete like, understanding of and therefore domination over nature uh, and that this in doing so would create the conditions for a kind of like fundamentally like rational and humane world order out of which grew the kind of concepts of like inter liberal internationalism at later stages and things. Yeah. this idea that like um and and the... uh the main source i'm actually working from yeah just 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 one thing like the main source i'm actually like working from on this is rosie bradotti's the post-human uh which i think gave a very good kind of made the kind of observation that this was very much a kind of like secularized version of a fundamentally Augustinian kind of notion of uh, as a divine providence. Yeah. Yeah. If I can come, if I can sort of yeah, come yeah, in yeah, here, just to it, give yeah, a little sorry. bit, just to give a little bit of um, sort of uh, a little bit of sort of theological background here. This is some the the question of the the, the origin of because we you, know, you were say like you said there, humanism and the enlightenment are somewhat interchangeable terms. So is liberalism as well. And the like the project that um, John Milbank in his work in the nineties was very. Uh, concerned with what what this focus of the study was was this question of sort of like how do we go how did we go from pre modernity from the from the medieval world into the world of uh, secular liberalism like what actually is the process that led uh, led uh, led to that and then his his uh, understanding of this um, begins with the notion of of a movement away from you you referred to it to the Neoplatonists but this idea that um, European thought moved away from an equivocal conception of being into a univocal conception of being, by which I mean simply um, an equivocal conception of being would hold that if we talk about the being of this fucking beer can I'm drinking from, like the being something like that has or that you have or that I have is different in kind, is qualitatively different from the being of god they we when we say that god exists when i say that i exist we the word exist is doing different jobs there but a univocal conception of being flattens being out into a single level plane where the difference between myself and my different and, and god is not a difference in kind it's an infinite difference in terms of um quality um you know, there is nothing about me which is similar to God, and that God is still infinite and so on, and, and eternal and all powerful and so on. But God is still just a being among beings. He's just he is an eternal being, but he still exists within that same on on that same level playing field of being. And for for John Milbank and for the 
sort of uh, post-liberal theologians in his wake. This is um, this really links into what you were saying there about the because what that assumes already assumes is that um, in innately everything is available basically you know that 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 that, that there aren't different qualitative that there aren't differences in kind when it comes to being there is just universal being available to mind to comprehend and also importantly available to will to dominate and to control and there being and yeah so that that just to give a little bit of a, a little bit more of a just just to talk a little about that give a bit blah, 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 context there you go just a bit yeah, of context there. yeah and i think that actually very usefully sets up for like how this comes into why post why the concept of posthumanism is so significant in this because that's going to take a little bit of working around because I, I it all felt so certain earlier on but basically that thing about kind of like everything being inherently available it's perhaps no mistake or you know no accident that that is essentially a description of the ideology of capitalism that you can bend the world to your will and extract from it whatever whatever it offers up because that is your god-given right because the tools that as an american given. Yes. uh yeah as an american <laughs> as yeah um all that and you know so it's like it became you know obviously the it is you know still the underpinning ideology of um capitalism but you know via having become the ideology of you know it was the intellectual force that um allowed colonialists to kind of justify their actions to themselves and that and that you know established the ground for modern capitalism so what what i want to do sorry what i want to do so i think i think we have established what we mean when we talk about humanism but like so what 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 do we mean when we say post-humanism then post-humanism is basically the the like (laughs) wait i'm just gonna see what i wrote down uh because i realized like yeah humanism um so, yeah, I've got post-humanism, therefore, kind of represents a theoretical space grounded in the rec- recognition of, like, just the hollowness of this idea and um, describes a kind of a process of reckoning with the world without these kind of anthropocentric certainties that Enlightenment philosophy relies on to function. Um, and so it's, like, kind of, like, it gets very philosophical. <laughs> um, but, yeah. We know roughly kind of what like, we mean. It's, it's, yeah, it's, that's roughly what we mean. I mean, like, kind of, that's the starting point post of posthumanism. It's, it's an interrogative. And the that, yeah, the questions inter- that come from it are the ones that we are asking now. Yeah, which it's, it's, is yeah, it's an interrogative critical position that among, like, for example, one like it, try, trying to lay lay. Uh, put out in the sunlight what the, the the assumptions behind humanist tradition are in particular assumptions around property around gender around race and so on the you know, mm-hmm. the human of renaissance humanism is a man like it is a man it is it's, it's a man possessed of certain faculties it is a man who owns property it is a man mm-hmm. uh, 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 and so on and it is also still a man sort of like in a particular relationship with god and so on although mm-hmm. this is also you know a, 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 a theological force that eventually ends up killing god well not well nietzsche would say not killing god but you know because uh but established but this is where liberal atheism or secular atheism emerges from as well though nietzsche distinguishes that kind of atheism from the death of god atheism of the superman but that's a completely uh, that's a different thing altogether um yeah but yeah so basically it seems to me that these liberal certainties are not present in the film tetsuo and that we are indeed faced with a situation where 
the post-human condition is readily apparent. And what does that look like? It looks like the film Tetsuo. So <laughs> let's just go over like what that means. So it's like he is he is the salary man. He is um someone who has who's just doing the right thing, basically. He's got a job, he's respectable, he dresses smartly, and uh he's keeping himself under control and rational and um engaging with the world as he understands is the most reasonable way and that will pay him the best dividends at the end of it, uh, or as a result. And um, if we go back to that line of, like, am I being punished? It's like, I don't know. That seems to be an admission that this isn't going terribly well for him because, um, because I mean, I talked about, like, you know, technology and capital, or capital and technology having this kind of, like, innate symbiosis um, and that these forces were kind of, like, created or enabled in some way by, you know, as the advanced stages of the Enlightenment. Um, however, they exist regardless of this ideological schema, so, and they're here, and they're innately destructive and uncontrollable. And so, yeah, um, that is... That is the post-human. That is the post-human condition as depicted in, in the film Tetsuo. And I think in um, particular, there's the image of the human being um, at the mercy of these forces as well. You know, sort of like um, this is not something that can actually... I mean, and this is where sort of, you know, in many ways, this is a film, an accelerationist film in the like the classical, the pre-Nazi sense of the word accelerationist. Uh, that, that the that, um, the, that uh, the machinery at play here, both the lit- both literal and abstract, is something that, like, we it's it's not... Human volition has nothing to do with this anymore. You know, this is something we are at the mercy of, and uh, it is not something that has mercy in its memory back. Yeah. Then, yeah yeah i think also it's kind of like i don't know just like small stylistic observation did you did you notice like during the scene where like right at the beginning with the metal fetishist where he's doing the kind of like implanting the metal rod in his um his like his his you know his room is full of kind of bits of machinery set up in a kind of like sculptural fashion um but also it's decorated with pictures of idealized male forms, which we see combusting into flames. Um, so yeah, so I don't have many other kind of like insights from the actual critical literature on posthumanism to bring to understand <laughs> this film, but um, but it's very evident that it is kind of like inherently posthumanist for this kind of like demonstration of the failure of the, you know, dramatic demonstration of the failure of these kind of like liberal rational presets that um have so failed to adjust our protagonist for modern life what i i mean this is just kind of like this isn't so much a kind of theoretical argument it's just kind of like what i see happening is it feels much more magical like there's a kind of more you know i spoke earlier of like um the metal fetishist having a kind of like spiritual transcendence i see that you know i see this film as being kind of like well what it struck struck me as first you know you can you can kind of build a lineage for this film going backwards because like the first part of call is obviously well not maybe not obviously but like early 19th century late 18th century um romanticism which kind of was 
has a complex relationship to the idea of enlightenment because it was obviously kind of very much inspired by the events of the French Revolution and and was in the same way kind of like a response to this rapid process of modernization and attempts to understand it and develop a kind of worldview that can then that can encompass these but it took a very much more kind of like magical <laughs> you know, I have a literature degree. It's like, it's like, yeah, a, a really, a much more kind of like freaky hippie kind of take on it with all this shit about like gods and divinity and like uh, very kind of like mysterious kind of symbolic depictions of these things happening through elaborate poem cycles and uh, really fucked like artistic experiments, uh, you know, the Tetsuos of their time. Um, but um, if you actually, I was, I, I'll yeah. say like a good little bit a good text that interrogates this a little bit is actually the first volume of The Invisibles by Grant Morrison mm. uh, remind me I don't think you've read The Invisibles have you? I've read like that one you lent me I need to read more like definitely definitely but yeah no just like the first in the in the first volume uh of the invisibles the the invisibles uh psychically travel back to the french revolution meet the marquis de sars and all of that and there's a I whole like bit, yeah yeah and there's just like a whole, whole thing, thing where sort of like a converse like uh, a sort of like um unconnected for the main narrative other thing going on it's just a conversation i think it's like an imaginary conversation between lord byron and percy shelley about like revolution and atheism and so on so yeah. uh, i don't know i just usually if there's an excuse i mean i don't know the invisible's kind of like it's aged Anytime badly is it's aged badly you. because yeah. of the pandemic because of the anti-vax stuff but um uh yeah but uh yeah any expert <laughs> all the same any excuse to read yeah any excuse um, to recommend the invisibles though yeah uh so yeah but like one of the key things like you know a big part of this kind of like spiritual movement and a kind of recurrent theme in that um was this a preoccup you know a large part of their kind of like philosophy that emerged out of this was a preoccupation with unity with a kind of like a prime a primordial unity and uh, very often, like, the, the concept of kind of, like, marriage is evoked in sometimes, very you know, sometimes it, in very upfront ways, like the marriage of heaven and hell, um, the, you know, the, the joining of forces and the finding of kind of, like, other states from that, or, you know, there's, like, other shit, like, um, I think it's, like, uh, the, the Rhine of the Ancient Mariner belong it begins with a kind of marriage thing, and a lot of this kind of, like, is riffing on an earlier tradition, which is the kind of, like, Rosicrucian, Renaissance, Hermetic tradition that we touched on recently in our lovely conversations about Alistair Crowley, uh, because the the most famous marriage of that um, ancient tradition was the chemical wedding. Um, this kind of, like, union of parts to bring about the sum of something else, but something else that had come before. Um, and, yeah, and I feel like I don't know. I just feel like that is sort of the thing that distinguishes it is a different appreciation of mystery and a appreciation of kind of like where one sees themselves in a fundamentally divine cosmos. Well, like not a divine cosmos, but a, a fucked and incomprehensible cosmos, a sublime cosmos. And yeah, and I think it's like kind of, if nothing else, this film is an exploration of the sublime, but achieved through a critique of um of modern capitalism and and it's kind of like i kind of i don't know i i think i'm just gonna like hold off on my my ch my thing i d 
did so much reading for about like Bataille's base materialism just because I it's not that I don't have time for it it's just that I don't think I understand it enough to bring anything relevant to this conversation but um I guess this is like kind of where we pull back to how based on my kind of reading around these things how I understand this film and like how I understand the process of the film having been depicted and this is sort of like one of the many kind of things that I thought would be my main thesis like running through it but the idea that this isn't a cyberpunk film because the actual technology is either not advanced enough or the fact that it works doesn't really matter what matters it's heat and machinery and metal and movement and what I what I see happening is not um a transcendence into a fully digital automated cyberpunk you know po- transhuman or post-human world in that sense what i see and what i see kind of being indicated is these kind of like untrammeled mystic mysterious forces having been unleashed by you know something some property inherent to the materials that is iron and steel uh having been kind of corrupted or altered in a certain way by the forces of capitalism and technology uh, to have some other unknown property released from them that is now kind of like emerging from it and taking over and consuming everything in its in its path, but um, but making it making an understanding available to those willing to to experience it. Um, you know, and, and, you know, like the, like a kind of more willing acolyte such as the metal fetishist or someone who requires a great deal more prompting such as the salaryman. Because like I, I said earlier, it's not a fight. It's like, it's, it's the metal fetishist forcing salaryman to see, to witness what he's seeing. And during the bit where they're like flying around and shit, he's just like hitting him and yelling, I think just something to the equivalent of like, come on, come on, get it, get it. <laughs> and... And then they reach it by becoming a dick. Exactly. Uh, and that part is not covered in my my philosophies. So I'm going to pick up on that and I'm going to talk a little bit about... Um, philosophy right i'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the body of our organs which is um so yeah like um for our comeback episode i decided to pick one of the most difficult concepts that those famously mercurial philosophers Deleuze and guattari gave us uh we love doing that because we hate ourselves oh but i don't know Ah, you gotta love yourself a bit to (laughs) be a machine without organs (coughs) i don't know Anyway, okay, so like, like um, as 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 uh, as I'm certain all of our listeners know, who are all you know seasoned Deleuzians, um, what exactly it is Deleuze and all Guattari mean when they talk about the body of our organs? It kind of varies depending on the text or the period we're talking about. Um, Ah. So it's a concept that emerges out of, like, the earliest versions of it emerge out of uh, Deleuze's work on Spinoza, and Spinoza, who, of course, you you are thoroughly familiar with this now, Spinoza being the uh, Dutch-Jewish philosopher who, in his work, The Ethics, engages in a kind of... um, uh, he, he, he 
he embarks on a project that is very mon- a, a kind of a monist project basically he it gives a, gr- a great uh, a, one of the great famous philosophical articulations of a kind of radical substance monism um and the the view that there is just one there can only be one substance and substance is always and everywhere the same metaphysically at root because how can there be a div- how can there be more than one substance meta at the metaphysical root anyway the and and and, and Deleuze Deleuze takes takes goes from this to develop and, and I'm not a Deleuze scholar I'm not going to talk about how he develops from how his spinozism develops into like these more distinct concepts because I'm not I just don't know but out of this Deleuze and Guattari develop a material develop their materialist philosophy and so we we end so we come to this category to, to this concept of the body of our organs and uh let me just read this actually because this this is something that is gonna be like okay i'm just gonna read this okay this is just from anti-oedipus an apparent conflict arises between desiring the machines and the body without organs. Every coupling of machines, every production of a machine, every sound of a machine running becomes unbearable to the body without organs. Because it's beneath its organs, its senses, there are larvae and loathsome worms and a god at work messing it all up or strangling it by organising it. The body is the body. It is all by itself and has no need of organs. The body is never an organism. Organisms are the enemy of the body. If a quote from Marto. Merely so many nails piercing the flesh, so many forms of torture. In order to resist organ machines, the body without organs presents its smooth, slippery, opaque, taut surface as a barrier. In order to resist linked, connected, and interrupted flows, it sets up a counterflow of amorphous, undifferentiated fluid. In order to resist using words composed of articulated phonetic units, it utters only gasps and cries that are sheer, unarticulated blocks of sound. So... And a simple okay, on like a really basic level, um, the body without organs kind of just refers to like undifferentiated matter. That is that is one of the meanings of the body without organs. It is the undifferentiated matter upon which form is applied. Although in Antiedipus they talk about this more in the terms of the inscri- the inscription, uh, a process of inscription um, is a, is is applied to the body without organs, and this is kind of a process which gathers the body of our organs into the into the realms of social reproduction and the reproduction of ideology and so on this is a proper like quick and dirty guide to this so please don't quote this in your essays um the uh so that that's a sense that's something that that's kind of part of the sense of the body without organs but there's also something about the body without organs where it acts as a kind of threatening frontier to the machinery of production and that is both literal production the production of desires and also global social reproduction the reproduction of ideology the reproduction of cultural value and so on because the thing is when the on the surface of the body of our organs we're not dealing with binary couplings of either where, where choices have to be made basically where it's this or that either or on the on the surface of the body without organs, we have this kind of this 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 un, this, this undifferentiated plane of or 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 and so on, where 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 the flow is where desire where ex, where where experience where can kind of 
just go in any direction it wants. And this is why they're so concerned with the figure of the schizophrenic and anti-Oedipus, because in their in their interpretation, in the way that they use schizophrenia, the image of the schizophrenic, the schizophrenic is someone who kind of has like collapsed onto their body without organs, because the body without organs is kind of, is also a personal thing, uh, and which is why you know they talk about in conversation the schizophrenic constantly produces new narratives new concepts new visions new symbols to describe themselves and this is why and and hence so the reason why the book is called anti-oedipus is because it's an attack on the freudian psychoanalytic notion that desire is always ultimately triangulated by the oedipus complex it all goes back to either a failure to live through oedipus or because of the events of oedipus and whatnot and freud declared that the schizophrenic or that he calls it the psychotic never true psychotic cannot be psychoanalyzed because they can never be brought back to oedipus because it's always just the constant them flow a verb from them basically and but for Deleuze and Guattari that's kind of the whole point the sort of like once you get past all of the the layers of social programming and so and, and linguistic programming and so on onto the onto this plane you don't find Oedipus there because Oedipus was only ever a particular conjuration of some of the desiring forces that we were all at the mercy of in 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 a heteronormative patriarchal capitalist society and the schizophrenic kind of just shows that all of these just actually break down if you pursue them down to to uh, to their base level basically and when it comes and in the essay how to make it, how to make yourself a body without organs in a thousand plateaus which is a much easier essay to understand than the essay in the body without organs and anti-oedipus they talk about the body without organs in very spiritual terms they even they, like they quote carlos castaneda in it this idea that the body without organs is this kind of threshold of our own possibilities that it's a dangerous and perilous journey to get there we can end up becoming a, a cancerous body without organs you know like we could develop like the fascistic personality or the drug addicted personality and so on but it's but just to um but it is also because it is this plane of possibility it is also like this frontier of liberation to bring it back to what you were saying there lucy though because i because i'm aware that's a little bit takes off in a, in a different direction is to what you were saying there about how in this film there's this idea that metal um actually has an agency and a power and an energy of its own and what we're seeing in this film is the way that is erupting out of the constraints of liberal capitalist heteronormative society and actually has a lot has a lot to say all of its own even if you're following Deleuze and Guattari it's not words it's more of a kind of a pre-linguistic primordial howling a kind of a metallic primal scream and actually there's a sense like one thing we've not talked we've we've not mentioned uh much is the music like the music in this is absolutely phenomenal it's one of the great industrial soundtracks by Chu Ishikawa which is surprisingly difficult to track down actually like it's all it's all on YouTube I mean like it's not yeah um and it's it's this like great throbbing grimy abrasive um hella dancey though (laughs) industrial uh heavy industrial soundtrack and it feels it's very it is still very difficult to listen to and is incredibly like hostile and just loud and it has and and again there is and i think that 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 amplifies this this sense that this is the film where where metal 
metal is speaking with a voice of its own where metal is kind of where metal erupts as a body without organs because it is better yeah it's the it's the disciplining of metal that Mm -hmm. makes the industrial revolution possible right you know Um, as well as the as well as the disciplining of of bodies and the disciplining of of um of fossil fuels uh, and the disciplining of land and sea it's also for bringing metal into cultivation of learning to create new kinds of metal uh, and putting that to work for us is what makes this possible and 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 and, and as well as that like you like I, uranium is a metal right i'm not going to say something really stupid there am i, mean, I? most like, elements are metal so i don't i mean you got a pretty good ballpark to probably that into, like, you'll probably be right but like even you know sort of like the great terror of the 20th century being you know being the atomic weapon you know but it's still discovering new ways of oh maybe even if it isn't strictly speaking disciplining metal because i did not study science uh it is still bringing it is still finding new ways to set upon matter and to discipline matter uh in into producing new producing an energy that we want and yeah and i think that that really does actually tie into like the post-humanist stuff you're saying that this is a film about about the humiliation of the the of the of the human of the enlightenment i think uh yeah we can even do i i meant to kind of flag this up earlier but like we are back on body horror territory which is one of the first things that we talked about in uh in the context of um in the context of like the weird like um and actually if if you're if you if you're good like if you don't mind like kind of like a bit of a digression slash like bringing this back um i guess like what i wanted to kind of ask was like how how we saw this kind of like well i'm not saying that this this film is necessarily a deliberate sort of like uh schema to um to like understand you know to de- depicting that i'm not saying that like you know chua shikawa was consciously delusion but like may well have been there uh, are many unconscious like delusions guy. yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> as, as i i feel many many podcast adjacent people are as well i don't know but um but yeah i don't know like i think just like to briefly go back to the question of like genre which we had like right up at the top and and you know comparing this to um comparing this to the other two films um and how they're kind of like they're dealing they're in in their different ways a kind of like a reckoning with uh the late capitalist condition and in this it feels very much like this is like you know we talk about this as a sci-fi film but it is kind of almost more of a fantasy film because it's like it's sort of only tangentially you know it's a sort of like hypothetical stand-in for Tokyo. It's like the city isn't named and it's just kind of like city. It's just, you are in city space. Uh, you are witnessing kind of like, there's no kind of like industrial center. There's no history to this place. It is just this accumulation of energies and capitalist forces that come together to create such an environment, create the environment in which this uh, sequence of events kind of necessarily had to happen. Um, but I guess, like, the the reason I brought up body horror there was, like, um, we had, I think, when we first kind of encountered body horror in, in Weird Signal, the way I decided to kind of, like, the, the, defi- the definition I decided to run with was going back to that idea of, like, the five humiliations. The, um, I located the concept of body horror as being one 
inherently kind of anthropocentric in that like the horror of it emerges from um emerges from the uh, the kind of like the experience of the uncanny in seeing things that are familiar recognizable to us as a whole and normally and healthily functioning body being disrupted by um forces that don't make sense in the scheme in which you understand that body existing uh and i guess, i don't know i guess like kind of like horror itself is just you know is uh, a subjective thing but um i guess it's just kind of like it feels interesting to place like where we see the human in this is this a kind of like are we meant to see it as a kind of like psychodrama in which these themes are writ large or are we meant to kind of like understand it as like you know is this inside the person's head because i mean there is there is a lot of question about kind of like what reality this is even existing in given the fact that there's kind of like it hops in and out of dream space quite significantly um but yeah i mean are we is is this kind of like this the schizophrenic condition that you describe being manifested by the fact that like this is a person whose boundaries are breaking down and they are becoming one with the forces around them which are which are kind of like almost like kind of equivalent machines to the desiring machine that is the salary man i don't know <laughs> i may have i may not have that right but it's, i don't know it's just this is a lot to chew on this film yes <laughs> yeah i also um, kind of like i just wanted to make a little comment about the music like yes one of the one of the cool things about the music in fact it's like especially that main bit the kind of megatron theme is the fact that it is it's like eight minutes long and it is like literally four it's two notes and then a little refrain just repeated over and over again and it's just um over a, just this repetitive machine like drumbeat and it, it's like it is, you know, you described it as being danceable, but it is, yeah, it's not a song. None of it is songs. None of it has, like, kind of, like, uh, introduction, chorus, melody, middle eight, or whatever. It is just a, pro you know, a series of things happening, and it feels like, you know, it feels ritualistic. It feels like it's kind of leading you into a almost trance-like state and, prepare and preparing you for, like, it's, you know, it's... It's in microcosm that process preparation that um, that salaryman is undergoing at the instigation of the metal fetishist. Um, that's like, yeah, uh, just I fucking love this film. It's <laughs> such a good film. It's so much fun. Um, yeah. So I have. It's also I have, gay as hell. Is that... <laughs> well, well, funny you well. should mention that, Lucy, because ah. um, in fact the top of my notes here which i would just read verbatim is on a very literal level this is the story of one man obsessively pursuing another which ends with the two of them discovering the joy of gay sex and um yeah and uh, elsewhere my notes have written this is a gay si a gay rom-com and all of those things are true i'm only ever telling the truth when i'm trying to make you laugh listener um so yeah like i do like I, i'm very very seriously like i do want to assess this I, uh, I think part of how we should assess this film is as a queer film because the and, I mean it yeah. is a film that ends with, with, with two dudes declaring their love for each other and turning into a giant penis like there are symbols here uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's very um, much a metaphor for symbolism metaphor for the symbolism okay so like we've, we've you mentioned already the, like there's a there's a kind of androgyne 
aesthetic to the metal fetishists and that is really really important i think uh because like 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 when like towards the end of the film when he turns up again like he's got huge hair and makeup and he honestly does look like he was you know something out of Susie and the banshees right and and like you also said sort of like his hideaway is decorated with cutouts of idealized aesthetic like athletic male bodies um and this is like and okay but it's just gonna be a lot of sort of like i know i was talking about like deleuze and such here i'm just gonna do a lot of sort of like cod freudian symbolism shit here because that's i don't know people, that's what our listeners pay for sometimes <laughs> <laughs> and like look he 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 opens a wound in his thigh to stick the bolt in and following on from Freud, of course, the wound is always the vagina, right? And, you know, and he forces a metal rod into it here. And this is, there's like very, like, I think like the, uh, like there's a certain kind of really blunt Freudian kind of symbolism here to this being a kind of a hermaphroditic masturbatory sex act here you know sort of like the like creating or inscribing onto himself the vaginal opening which he then forces the the phallic rod into um but like I'm not gonna I'm not I'm not just leaving us here with Daddy Freud though because that would be that would be stupid. Like what I think like I think this is in many ways like a film which is a kind of like a testament to a, a a really threatening kind of queerness. I mean, I mean that in a good, in a, in a positive sense. I mean, like the idea that there is nothing that queerness represents a threat to the to the established order, right? And it ought to, and that is why queerness is something to embrace. Uh, something why we all ought to be queer. So the and um, ah God, let me look at my notes here. So homose okay, so homosexual acts are often stereotyped or described, you know, by the re in, in reactionary culture as being as being masturbatory acts ultimately because they're unproductive. They do not possess a reproductive potential. And this is like kind of like Roger Scruton's shit, you know, saying this all like that, that, that in a certain sense gay sex is impossible or it will always be morally inferior because it's not does not represent a unison of opposites so yeah and, and fuck you uh and so i on. actually i have a point i want to come back to on that um, okay. actually can i can i just put in a little aside on that uh, yeah please just, do please do in fact I, just to kind of call back to in fact our death in venice episode uh where i talked about the idea of like the definition of homosexuality in freudian terms as being narcissism yes, uh, yes the yes, idea yes, yes, yes. of like um, and this is also where, like, um, kind of psychoanalysis tried to kind of make um, homosexuality um, and pederasty kind of part of the same um, spectrum, was this idea that it's essentially um, treating homosexuality as a developmental condition where uh, one doesn't form object attachments outside the self, um, and so doesn't kind of, like, mature into a kind of, like... Um, well, like the the process of like maturing would be kind of like developing object attachments and then becoming attracted to women because women don't lose that primordial narcissism. And so in uh, getting together with a woman, um, a heterosexual man is essentially reclaiming their own um, kind of lost narcissism and, and achieving a kind of unity that way. Um, whereas uh, the narcissism, it's kind of like, well, the narcissism never ends with the homosexual, so it's more just kind of they um, they find just something they find the most immediate course to it, which is either um, 
in like a direct kind of reflection of themselves but it as but also kind of a reflection of themselves at a younger age uh which is where you get those those weird age dynamics uh between um Ashenbeck and Tetsuo in the in Death and Venice um but I don't know I feel like something I mean you may want to pick up on this as well but like I feel something is different in this in the fact that like if we go with the idea that this is a kind of like neo-romantic kind of magical uh, schema, this unity is being achieved in a different way, in a way that's kind of separated from all these things and is in fact kind of resisting these kind of uh, frameworks of analysis. But I don't know, I just kind of wanted to put yes. that out there, actually. No, that's that's, that's, a, that's, very, no, that's a very important point, I think. And um and yeah, just to, just to go back to what I was saying there about about the question of, of reproduction. Like I think like when we talk about for the reactionary how homosexual, the homosexual uh, relationship has the reproductive potential, like that that should be understood. I think in two ways, both in the literal sense of that, like it is not a procreative relationship. You do not get children out of it. But also second, but but but. But secondarily, and arguably more threateningly to the established order, is the fact that it doesn't involve the reproduction of the heterosexual family unit either, because it rep because it for obvious reasons, right? So there's two ways in which the homosexual, the queer, is blocking these uh, uh, reproduction or is denying reproduction as being a source of meaning for them but they're just desiring neither to reproduce the social order nor to propagate the species um anyway as such as such okay so as such if we're following on from this the homosexual is seen from the reactionary perspective as dealing with death basically uh their sex produces nothing uh there's a and you know there's often a you know obsessive focus from reactionaries on the anality of gay sex uh, which seems to confirm that um you know that, that, that it's just what all you're do, doing there to achieve this pseudo congress is putting into use their body's eliminative mechanisms and so on um <laughs> and um and obviously i'm sp i'm talking specifically about male male uh, um, homosexuality here obviously and as well as that like the hiv aids crisis was seen was seen by the established powers as being just confirmation of this that this was a uh, this was a form of lifestyle that was the that is inherently destructive both socially and to the participants because it deny it is denying it is denying the sacredness of reproduction in all of those senses and this is something like there was infamously a um uh it wasn't a chicked tract but it was along those lines and like an, a christian anti-gay comic called uh homosexual i forget it was by but called homosexuality uh, authentic legitimate death style um hello metal yo uh, which which was which is just that like it's just repeating all of this this like the idea that uh that because gays are too silly basically uh they muck about and as such can never they just why well, they want to become hairdressers and so on and they give nothing back to society because they are incapable of of understanding the value of producing the social bonds outside of the self and so on and so um and over the guy who i really want to talk about here is a quick American queer theorist Lee Adelman, who wrote a book called um, No Future. Uh, we'll get the full title here, actually. Excuse me. Uh, no Future: Queer Theory and the Death Drive. It came out in two thousand and four, and it's considered sort of like a it's considered like a foundational work of modern of modern queer theory. 
And I'm just going to be very boring, just going to read what it is I've written here. Uh, Lee Aderman considered the queers doing it with death to be the most powerful threat the queer uh, poses to the heteroproductive order. Uh, Aderman argues that the image of the child, the obligation towards towards productive, reproductive futurity, is the master signifier of the heteropatriarchal capitalist order by producing the child, by subordinating us and our pleasures to producing the child, we grant meaning to our existence to our lives and justify our existence by embracing the unproductive nature of their sex the queer aligns themselves not with the symbolic order over which the child reigns but with the death drive with cuisance with the real of a queer is always in this sense it's always a necrophile and it's it, and it is from the un well i don't god so i'm just going to read this really stupid sentence i, I wrote here in my notes <laughs> the queer is always a necrophile and it is from the unclean blossoms of our love that come that, that our resistance to futurity flows sorry that was a shitty sentence thank god what a bastard idiot i am <laughs> <laughs> So that's a direct quote from this guy, right? No, that's Lee me. Adelman. That's me. No, I no, wrote that. No, <laughs> Lee Aderman. I'm certain was a lovely man. He wrote a fantastic book, and I'm just bastardizing yeah, everything yeah, he yeah. wrote. Yeah, no getting around that. That was uh, take the L here. Yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> Podcast over. <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Well, anyway, so <laughs> Sean Wright's worst sentence asked to, asked to leave podcast. <laughs> <coughs> excuse me excuse me it's just a little cough so yeah um I'm just going to keep on going with this okay so in Lacanian's thought the death drive Huissant and the real are closely bound and I'll say right here my knowledge of Lacan is very super it's, it's fairly superficial but this is just kind of like my understanding these three concepts sort of it, um they relate to this notion of uh of an an ineliminable excessive ineliminable excessive quantities basically yeah so the uh the drives that Lacan talks about are the impossible to satisfy like propulsive forces of the of, of the subject that and that that cause us to constantly circulate in search of of, of uh, perfect objects which we can never achieve and indeed the point of the drive is just the cyclical action of its own pursuit. Um, Huissance, which is a which is like the first thing everybody knows about Huissance is the fact it never gets translated into English because there isn't really an English equivalent to it. But it means usually translated as enjoyment, but the idea of a kind of excessive, painful act of pleasure, a kind of uh, like 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 the orgasm essentially, and the real for Lacan is is everything that cannot fall within to the the circles of the imaginary and the symbolic that it's this 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 again this threatening remainder um that is can always has the potential to come crashing in and to be this unprocessable interruption in the imaginary symbolic order and you know you can see here this is you know Deleuze and Guattari are reacting to Lacan in their writing more than they are reacting to Freud and you can see the body without organs is very similar to this this kind of threatening boundary this threatening boundary that has to be tried which the machinery of desire and social reproduction has to discipline I'm gonna tie. I'm not going to go through um, all of my notes here because, like, I want to tie this back to the film. So I'm aware we've been talking for a while here. But I've the... got also a couple of points I want to bring in after that. But like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I think like if with all of this in mind, like these notions of queerness, the idea, you know, that, that, that queerness is inherently threatening. That there's something that to the to the mindset of heterocapitalism, it's always deathly 
uh, and and so on because of these these threats that it de- that it's always that it always possesses as well as just like the in, in, its inherent nature as a, as a form of sexuality. Tetsuo, if we look at Tetsuo, like again, like it is a film about. I I, I think I I don't like its queerness. Is I think is very 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 direct like because one thing we've not mentioned is the salary man's nightmare where he has a a nightmare of his girlfriend sodomizing him with a robo dick basically that grows out of her crotch and it's a different robo dick from the robo dick that he later spawns irl there are no fewer than three robo dicks in this film in fact yeah that's quite right god Three hundred percent have one, you know. Three hundred percent more Robo Dick than I was anticipating. Yeah, um, <laughs> and I think so. And I think, and again, the the the, the, the there's a sense where like the way that machinery is, is sometimes is represented in this film it is a kind of sort of like a masculine aesthetic, a, a rotter asceticism to it. And again, you have the metal fetishist. His hideaway is machinery with images of bodies kind of like entwined around it which emphasizing again sort of the like i'm a kind of an appreciation of the male form as being as as having kind of the elegance of of the machine you know sort of like these things all collapsing into each other i've got a little just like open-ended thing i want to point out about that like yeah there is kind of like i feel that there's a whole like whole nother gendered dimension to this that i don't think we can address comprehensively in this form but like in this in this episode but i there is like an episode that we've been talking about doing for a while that will probably pick up where we leave off here but i just wanted to say like yeah there's an interesting kind of like idea of like kind of masculinity associated with the um with the uh with the machinery and with the events happening in the like so the kind of like the back and forth between Salary Man and his girlfriend it culminates with uh, the girlfriend being killed by the the robot dick, and uh, she's seen kind of like he just like at one point just leaves her in the bath, and instead of like turning into metal, she becomes covered in daisies. She sprouts a bunch of daisies and and becomes part of some sort of like resurgent. Uh, non-human like vegetable life uh, that that then is more or less blasted out of the film entirely um, by the kind of, like, big escalation in the flat. But, um, yeah, I don't know. I just wanted to bring that up because this is a a film I've also talked about before where, like, um, Kei Fujiwara, who plays the girlfriend and was also cinematographer on this film, made a film called Organ, which is thematically kind of picking up on, I think, a lot of these themes. But, crucially, that one, it's, it's about plants. Uh, I haven't seen it in a while, and I haven't rewatched it because it was difficult to watch because it's deeply <laughs> unpleasant, possibly even more so than Tetsuo, not least because it's in color. Um, but um, yeah, I just thought that was interesting. That that I mean, it's like it's a bit of a kind of like um, a bit of a cliche that like girls have plants, boys have machines, you know. <laughs> um, but um, but yeah, no, that's a. Yeah, sorry, that was that was meant to be briefer than it was, but yeah, as you're saying. No, but, but yeah, and and with the and when his transformation into 
the biomechanoid monster with the giant robo dick you know like when it comes to the question of the robo dick there's different ways that we can think about this like like if we if we are viewing this as kind of like a manifestation of his defense of his heterosexuality which is inherently a destructive action where it results in the in the death of his girlfriend you know that that becomes very obvious why he would manifest this enormous drill bit phallus at the same time you know if if this is kind of if this there would be like <laughs> if this is his idealized ultra powerful masculine body born out of a repressed queerness it also makes sense why he would have an enormous dong as well if you think about it so and but the but when when the metal fetishist like turns up he's carrying a bunch of flowers <laughs> When yeah, he turns up at the guy's apartment, you know, and there's and like I said, if we know if we don't view this as as a fight, but view it as a kind of aggressive courtship of or 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 a kind of uh, aggressive sort of like process in 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 outing outing the salary man to himself almost, you know, like the it you know and like again we, the conclusion of the film. Again, it's the two of them merging into an enormous phallus. Um, we uh, and <laughs> and the the immortal line from this film, like you zooms in on the salivary man's face embedded in the uh, in the fr- I think in the frenulum limb of the dick. Um, is he just groans and says, "I feel great," and then of course the line that everybody who's seen the film knows: um, the uh, uh, um, the metal fetishist bellows together our love could put an end to this fucking world, and. Again, again, this Turn is the whole like world to metal and rust it. Exactly, and again, yeah. sort of like this. This is that is the line that ties all of these disparate theoretical points uh, together. This is, you know, sort of like their love. The queer love is the the um, the, the necrotizing anti-life needs to destroy the monstrous reign of the child uh, and reproductive futurity. And it is also the eruption of the pure realm of possibility that is the body of our organs, the like the great the rust that lies at the root of being, so to speak. Also, um, there's a point like uh, I kind of wanted to tie this to what I, you know, to what I wanted to add about like the sexuality component to this. Uh, but I think it's like, I want to, elab- yeah, and I'll elaborate this on this more, but like, crucially, there's a distinction in that the, um, the, the, well, the difference, the reason why Salaryman is essentially, uh, well, why Metal Fetishist is so intensely, um, deter- like, set on um, making Salaryman kind of, like, realise what he is, is the fact that they both have metal that has been inserted into them and has become part of them and they have become part of it. But Metal Fetishist's metal was rusted from day one and it was corrupted. And um, he, in Salaryman, he sees so much potential because because um, his metal is uncorrupted. It's pure. It's not rusted. It's stainless and steel, not it's iron. It's stainless steel, but he chooses the path of corruption for it. He, uh, which is, you know, um, uh, you know, which is significant. Um, but yeah, I kind of want to pick that up in a minute. But like, yeah, should we? Uh, yeah, you were going to add to that. I think I think I'm more or less done. Okay. Uh, Tetsu- Tetsuo is a coming out movie. It's yeah, deeply romantic I... and uh, powerfully erotic. Yeah, I have like two things that I think will also help kind of like summarize what we've been really working very hard to get to with this, which is like a coherent ending because it's like it warrants a coherent coming together of something uh from 
independently from both of us. But uh, so two points I had were one is one short one, one long one. I think we've got time for that. Like we're barely two hours in. So that's... Um, <laughs> Well, we're not. No, we're like. No, we're, we're not. We're, not, we're like hour twenty. Surprisingly short for a weird single episode. If we wrap it up here, so let's not do that. Um, yeah, like the, the, being... we did half an hour, then we realised it was bad, so we started over again. <laughs> so, uh, you know, this takes work, ladies and gentlemen. But uh, yeah, basically, so one of the things that I wanted to talk about, which is like another callback to the things we talked about in, I believe it was both the Death in Venice episode. Or, um, and or the um, Lovecraft and queerness episode, which is this idea of kind of like queerness and aestheticism. There was that whole Andrew Hewitt argument, which like, I can't remember all the main bits, components of how he got up to it, but there was the idea of kind of like the aesthetic, um, the aestheticization of being and like creating a purely aesthetic space to occupy as being kind of like ontologically or psychologically necessary as a queer person to exist in the world which is why the symbol of the dandy and the aesthete was such a major part of kind of the first formation well like the the main like formations of a um, modern european conception of homosexuality in the late 19th century uh coming out through figures like um oscar wilde or thomas mann um but there's kind of like well there's just as a quote I kind of highlighted from Rosie Bredotti in the third chapter of her book on the posthumanism, uh, The Inhuman Life Beyond Death, where she talks about the concept of art um, as being, you know, when we think about art, we think artifice, we think human creation, but, um, but I guess like kind of moving beyond kind of like more classical interpretations of what art represents, she, I'm just going to give the quote because I think it's like this, this is it, but this is following on from a similar talk about kind of like the concerns surrounding kind of dangerous non-productive femininity, um, which you know is adjacent to what you were saying with the um, with the kind of non- inherent non-productiveness of queer sex. But uh, yeah, she writes by transposing us beyond the confines of bound identities, art becomes necessarily inhuman in the sense of non-human, in that it connects us to the animal, the vegetable, earthly, and planetary forces that surround us. Art is also, moreover, cosmic in its resonance and hence post-human by structure, as it carries us to the limits of what our embodied selves can can or do endure. Insofar as art stretches the boundaries of representation to the utmost, it reaches the limits of life itself and thus confronts the horizon of death. To this effect, art is linked to death as the experience of limits. Um, and I just thought, like, that... I don't know where I'm going with that, but I feel it sort of, like, presents a nice kind of jumping-off point from what we were talking about with, like, the queerness of the film through the meaning of aesthetics to the idea of, like, death, entropy, and non-production. And I guess, like, well, this is... I said I wouldn't really talk about Bataille, but I feel... I'm feeling a little, uh, liquored up now. But, <laughs> um... Yeah, like, Bataille's whole... You know, you, I think you probably know more about this than me, so correct me if I'm wrong, but, like, Bataille's whole thing being about, like, transgression and the conception of, like, death as, like, a kind of, like, state in a process and 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 also, like, the idea of, kind of, like, the rational being um, that, you know, is, def- you know, the narrow boundary of, kind of, modern post-enlightenment man as being, kind of, um, a valorization of those vital specifically living forces which is undone by a a sense of like existence that acknowledges 
death as a state as part of its existence. Um, I can't remember exactly where that was going, but I don't know. I just thought, like, um, if we want to bring this back to my, well, my kind of, like, weird thesis that I've been developing in that, like, capitalist, we're talking, this is a play of forces, of, this is a, this is essentially a drama of materials being given a particular new nature by the forces of capitalism. And, um, I kind of, I don't know, maybe this is just a bit of a grab bag of, like, different things that kind of link up, but, um, you were talking about kind of, like, the, in, uh, Edelman talking about, like, the inherent, like, non-productiveness of, uh, of queer sex. What this is, what this resonates very strongly with is, like, Bataille's discussion of, you know, the accursed share and, and the, and the principle of expenditure that, um, and this actually, I guess, presents one of the, um, inherent contradictions of, like, modern liberal capitalism that, um, creates, you know, that opens up space for post-human questions. But the idea that, like, technically, the rational understanding of how capitalism works is that it produces value, and then that value, uh, is handled in the most rational, rational way to produce some sort of, like, worth or produce or produce greater scope for production and it's all kind of like in a in a kind of there's a sense of linearity and progression to that but one of the things that like Bataille talks about is the fact that so much of human social relations is based on waste on expenditure on destruction and this is like ironically you know capitalism talks about efficiency and progress but it is also essentially a massive ritual in destruction and um i feel like where this kind of leaves us is a place where this concept of like destructiveness or expenditure is present in both the things that we are seeing depicted on screen which is homosexuality eroticism er er homoeroticism and techno-capital coming together in a kind of event. Um, and I don't know, it's like, um, <laughs> that's, that's about where I kind of got up to with that, with that thought. But, um, I think, like, that just sets up for, like, fairly neatly for, like, one of the last things I think I wanted to say in terms of, like, stuff that we sort of planned to say in this episode, which is, um, that, I'm just gonna pour myself a little more whiskey, because I think we... Find ourselves a quick breather. I think um, you've earned that. And my tummy hurts, but I'm being so brave about it. You're being so brave about it. Mm. Uh, but yeah, but oh, wow. <laughs> um, yeah, basically, we talk about, you know, this is like a gay rom-com that's very funny. It's And it's true. Um, and like, you know, the way it is handled... It invites that interpretation, but at the same time, it's like what we are seeing is extremely violent, you know. And there are there's this idea that like kind of like it's an awakening, it's an awakening of like suppressed desires, but it is not a awakening that anyone in the in the film consented to, even the metal fetishist. Because I mean, like if we look at kind of like the weird like microbiography that we get of the metal fetishist, he doesn't start off as this kind of, like, acolyte to the machine divinity. He starts out as, like... Well, he's, like, abused as a boy? Like, there's that weird flashback scene where he's getting hit by an old man. 
or something. Yes, yes. Yeah, that's fucked up. And then there's a really weird doctor telling him about, like, the metal in his brain and shit. And then, like, he sort of, like, processes that trauma into his becoming as the metal fetishist. And then, basically, what he's doing is subjecting the salaryman to a kind of accelerated version of that process and so yes he's like delivering flowers and he's treating it like a date but and and just eventually yelling come on come on you you know what i'm doing you know what's happening but like at no point do we see salaryman right up until the end actually voluntarily engage in the process that's happening or even kind of like demonstrate that much curiosity about its outcome it's only right at the end when he's been absorbed when he's been fully like re re rematerialized as part of a gigantic robo dick that he's actually like actually this is really fucking good i understand now but but yeah and i think it's like and also like just like there's a different kind of like violence present in the heterosexual relationship he has with the girlfriend and that he dreams about her sodomizing him with a kind of vacuum cleaner dick um, and then wakes up and then kind of, and then kills her. But at the same time, she's like, she's the vic, like everyone at different stages is victim and aggressor. Like, cause she is rightly horrified by the violence that is being done to her but is obviously deeply attracted to and turned on by the violence when it's not directed at her. So, you know, she's inspired, you know, she and um, Salaryman have sex on the bonnet of the car, interestingly in the woods after they dump the body, (laughs) so away from the city, which is weird. And then she's, you know, fascinated by the violent energy embodied in the robot cock that Salaryman spawns. And then she's killed, but like, she's sort of, she's party to it eventually even though eventually leads to her destruction uh and you know unwilled destruction and i just think like if we want to go back to you know the idea that i've been sort of circling around of this being a kind of elemental drama and a kind of fundamentally magic narrative what we're seeing is like an ancient process maybe some, some something cosmic or universal unfolding but it's unfolding through the lens of capitalism which in and of itself is inherently violent. You know, now we see the violence inherent in the system. It's like, you know, when when we see technology and we see cars and we see flashy things, we're also thinking about like uh, colonialism and the military industrial complex. And all of that is present at the moment of contact with federal fetishist and car bonnet. And in they go and it's, and it's fucking wild. So yeah, that's, that's my take on Tetsuo. <laughs> Um, yes, I don't think I have anything anything really to add to that. Um, yeah, I mean, the, like, uh, there was sort of like there was there was like more formal stuff and a little bit more narrative stuff that I feel like we we've was done too our much bit. of a delay. I think we've done this film justice. I mean, there may be a bit I kind of wanted to kind of bring it in the end of like you know mopping up some like stylistic points. Well, like one being. You talked about this being like a curse narrative, uh, and I, I'm just conscious that we haven't really talked about like how this fits into the Japan trifecta in terms of what why this is distinctly Japanese, other than the fact that like um, Japan experienced an extremely rapid and disorientating process of industrialization over the course of the 20th century under suboptimal, you know, under quite enforced conditions. 
Um, but also, like, that idea of, like, accumulation of energies instead of, like, narrative events and the kind of, like, the mass nature of hauntings and kind of, like, the demonic that we see in shit like, you know, we talked about with, like, Onibaba and Pulse. I, I feel there's elements of that, but done in machines now. Um, but I don't know, these are conversations for another time and maybe we should just, maybe we should just do a separate episode on Electric Rod Boy, which you see little bits of it on the TV screens in Tetsuo. Uh, I just don't know how to end this episode. Um, uh, okay, let, yeah, yeah, it's, um, ha! well, okay, let's just talk a little bit about what we're going to be doing in the future with the podcast then. Let's just yeah. do some, Ooh, like, do uh, want to announce some housekeeping. That we're doing? I, well, I think we can announce the theme of the year. Mm. okay so okay the theme of the year the theme of the year um completely different to this film is going to be fucked america vibes we are yes we're returning to the land of the free uh i think like i think i i forget what films we've done i feel like we've done films that do straight into fucked america vibes at least once although we have had a bit of a preoccupation with japan more than once but yeah so Mm. the focus of the season we are going to be looking at a host of films that we feel really embody and interrogate that thing that we call fucked america vibes which we will give a much better definition of over the course of a year, we're not going to over do it a year. Over a year, we will be constructing it. We have, to spin out from those. yeah, we have uh, a couple of uh, confirmed guests. Um, one of whom I still can't quite believe that we've got them coming on. Uh, so that's really cool. Uh, and yeah, we are going to. I mean, this is the it's cursed Nick bit. Land. <laughs> <laughs> we've gone back to the 90s we found we found pre-institutionalized nick lamb back when he was still cool uh before the race hate um the the anyway so yeah we um the cursed bit here is a bit of, i'm gonna curse us by saying it is we are going to attempt to put these out a little bit quicker than we have done previously we're going to aim at two a month fucking yeah. hell we're and, gonna aim for two a month um and some of those maybe several you know at least one a month will be bonus and we're gonna do we're gonna be more consistent and better with the bonus content and also i think i want to drop the price a bit yeah this is all housekeeping we'll figure it out we'll figure it out anyway 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 thank you for joining us for this loud loud podcast where we scream at each other about bits of theory i don't think there was any other way we could have handled this subject matter and or film and or beginning event that is the beginning of what is literally Weird Signal Season 4, if you can believe that. Yeah. So, L- yeah. Lucy, what, what I would like to say is uh, me and you, together, our love can put an end to this whole fucking world. Yes. And like it and shall. subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> we can and we will. Anyway, well, uh, until, until, until such a time as when, stay weird. And keep it sick. Get fucking nice. Goodbye. <laughs>